0: But I love to see other people's houses and and, um, the idiosyncrasies and the madness and the undecoratedness of it. I mean, so many of these very monochrome interiors, you've gone in room and gone through it and out the other side, and you don't remember anything about it. Because I do think that interiors should have an adventure feel to them, and they should have a fun aspect to them. There should be some kind of focal point, something that, you know, references you as the owner.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Hotels have always been more than just a place to rest your head. They're somewhere to celebrate, somewhere to connect, somewhere to host a power lunch. In New York, I've long been a fan of two hotels in particular, one in Soho, the Crosby Street Hotel, and one in Midtown, the Whitby. Both are part of the Firmdale group of hotels, and whenever someone mentions meeting there for a lunch or just a cocktail, you know they're a serious person in the creative field. It's not too pretentious, but not too casual either. I can remember when the Crosby Street Hotel opened and it struck a chord with a certain set of guests and locals for its color, its uniqueness, and its utterly British sense of decor, pattern, shape, and tons of whimsy. It was the perfect antidote to the all-too-serious and minimalistic hotels of the era that tried to be anything but a happy place. Firmdale started in London, where they have about eight or so properties, and they stand alone for the fact that its owner and operator isn't some massive conglomerate, but a couple. And the visual brains behind it all is one half of that couple, and my guest today, Kit Kemp who designed each and every one, starting with the Dorset Square Hotel in 1985, along with her business partner and husband, Tim. Kit Kemp's utterly unique mix of being an owner, operator, and designer is practically unheard of in the industry. But she isn't just a hotelier, she also creates interiors for private clients and collaborates on products with names like Christopher Farr, Spode, and so many others. All that, and she's authored four books, and manages a creative team that literally sources every headboard, every door, and every lamp one would find in her imaginative hotels. I caught up with Kit from her studio in London, South Kensington, near the famed Victoria and Albert Museum, to chat about her unlikely bootstrap start in the world of design and hospitality, how she made her first splash in New York right after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, how she defines her studio's singular sense of style, and her latest triumph, the brand new Warren Street Hotel in Manhattan's ultra chic Tribeca neighborhood. And I read that you, you know, uh, when it came to home life, your parents were the kind that, you know, they were not the kind to constantly keep up with trends. Uh, no way. If you
0: could remember the last time you decorated something, didn't need doing again. <laughs> That's so terribly English though, isn't it? I I'm mean, sure it is. Yeah, yeah.
1: And what was life like for you um, as a young kid?
0: Oh, completely tomboyish. It was certainly, it was nothing to do with doll's houses or anything feminine. It was like holding my brother's hand when he was playing cricket and being dragged along, climbing trees. And um, it's the same thing now, actually. I'm much happier climbing up ladders or, or being with the work. I love sites. I love work sites. And I actually, I particularly like the site we're on now because they're all smiling all the time. And uh, one of my assistants speaks Spanish. So a lot of them are are from South America. And you can always tell by the music that they're playing in the rooms. <laughs>
1: I'm sure you can, you can, uh, you can spot some, uh, national musical pastimes. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Well. Yeah. So what would you do? I mean, other than holding your brother's hand, like what was, uh, what was like a fun weekend for, for you as a, as a young woman?
0: Um, well when I was very small I mean we just went out of the house in the morning and my mother had a whistle and that would bring us back for for meal times but but you know we were the original latchkey children my mother went to work my father went to work uh, uh, to keep you know to sort of so that the that we could all be held together. And, uh, but what it meant is that um, we were left on our own as kids a lot, actually, which is great. We We had freedom. We were a bit feral.
1: And uh, it was quite the countryside, right? What did your parents do? Yeah, it was.
0: Yes, there's no neighbors, no nothing. And actually going back in time, uh, I was just kind of remembering that uh, where my parents lived during the war, um, American soldiers came across to go to to France and they didn't know where they were going. And my parents didn't even know that they were going to be arriving in the field behind them. And my mother always says that um, she was out picking blackberries, and uh, suddenly she saw this this man on the other side of the hedge, and it was an American GI, um, happened to be a black guy. She'd never seen much of one before, and he was picking blackberries. And so she said, "If you pick the blackberries, I'll make a blackberry and apple pie, and in a tin, and uh, you know, and and enjoy it." So he, she did that, mm-hmm. and. Uh, then I think they went away for a day and he brought back the baking tins that they'd, that they'd eaten from and oh. just left a message saying, my oh my, that blueberry pie, <laughs> <laughs> which is so American, you know, I mean, it was so different from the, for them at that stage. Yeah, very funny. Wow,
1: amazing. Yeah. And so, what did your parents do?
0: uh my father was um an aircraft engineer but he always used to get so fed up because he said by the time they built something it was almost obsolete and so then he had a complete change of of career and um had the first espresso coffee bar in southampton and and a sort of jazz club he was a bit wow. of a dude and uh <laughs> and my mother my mother um worked for the bbc and um also was a a sort of JP. So that is someone who sort of sits in different courts and things like that, which he absolutely loved, you know. Yeah.
1: What did she do for the BBC out out in the country?
0: Um, Well, there was a producer in charge and she used to work for him.
1: Oh, wow. And, um, you know, did your parents kind of push you as you were in school to kind of any kind of career? Did they ever, you know, because you didn't study design necessarily and it's all kind of self-taught. So how... What did they, how did they push you along or did they push you along? Well,
0: they didn't, no. I mean, I don't think that girls were actually meant to do anything, not even drive a car. And um, so it's funny, really, because I thought, I never thought I'd have a career. I always thought I'd get married and live happily ever after. But of course, everything worked. Um, I mean, I never found anybody, frankly. And if anybody asked me to marry them, I'd immediately say yes. But... um, (laughs) But my husband was the only one who actually came through. Um, And that was much later. So in fact, I had to make um, my own living. And the first job I ever had was for an auctioneer. And uh, he was a real character. And We used to go along to sales and things. And I'd be sitting in the back room, he'd be doing the auctioneering, and then I'd be writing down all the figures and prices and the funny thing was that I, I didn't realize what I was learning, but I was learning about scale. I was learning about furniture. I was learning about junk. I was learning about dealers and how they deal and how you've really got to, you know, sort of mind your P's and Q's and watch what's going on and and um, be a bit streetwise. I think that was really good.
1: Just to talk about the auctioneer for a second, like what kind yeah. of things did, they, did he kind of sell? Was it mostly interiors or was it art too? Or
0: um, It was mostly, you know, sort of houses that were coming up for all auction, sort of large houses, middle-sized houses, you know, countryside houses. And, you know, there's always a history behind so many, even down to the way that somebody had their glasses in a glass case. You know, you'd suddenly look into bureaus and find all these wonderful sort of little lost objects that were so beautiful. And um, we used to go, we used to sort of look at everything and everything used to be, have its sort of story and its uh, place in history.
1: And uh, and at some point, I don't know how long were you with the with the auctioneer before you? Oh, got, I was
0: there. I was there. I guess for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah.
1: And then this uh, opportunity came up for uh, you know you worked for a Polish architect. Yeah, uh, I did. Working, in but London. I moved
0: to London. Then that was that was in the countryside. And then of course you know uh, you just uh, that I just wanted to be doing and I wanted to be in the centre of things and, and and that had to be London. Um, so I was like the fifth girl in a flat share. And <laughs> oh wow, what
1: year was that?
0: <laughs> oh laws, that was ages ago. That would be in um, hang on a minute. Seventy something, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you
1: know, being being young and being in London in a flat with five other uh, people, single girls, single yeah. girls. <laughs> like, uh, what part of London do you remember?
0: Yeah, it, it was it was in Upper Addison Gardens, um, and um, it's sort of little gardens, and and it's all changed around there now. You've got Westfield, which is a massive sort of. Um, uh, uh, a sort of shopping centre and things like that, but at that stage it was sort of one step away from Shepherd's Bush, and I could I found it very hard to understand Cockney actually <laughs> when I went to the butchers or something like that. I mean, I used oh, to say, "Oh gosh, oh yeah, what was that?" You said, "Yeah."
1: So you were there, and 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 this job came up with uh, a Polish architect. His name was was uh, Leszek Nowicki. Is that my pronunciation? Yeah,
0: Leszek Nowitzki. Leszek. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, he was a great. He w- he came. Via Siberia, oh, down wow. to Palestine, believe it or not, and and then came to the UK, and then studied to be. He was either going to be a doctor or an architect, and he decided to be an architect. And um, so I worked for him. He was he was um he was an extraordinary character, very very uh, powerful.
1: And I, I've read, you know, when you've talked about your time with him, that he was kind of a. Uh you know, you call them a Svengali, you yeah. know, and, and what was he, what was his work like and what kind of work did he do?
0: He was very, um, if he had to choose between pottery and fine China, it would be pottery. If he had to choose between sort of, you know, rustic wood and sort of ormulu and, and things like that, it would be the rustic. And, and I guess that was his background, but I love that strength and su- uh, simplicity to his work. Um, and and always still very organic, right from the word go. I mean, always. Yeah. And as
1: an architect, was he doing interiors or or sort of ground up work?
0: He was he was working um, in, in uh, large country houses, but oh. then again, also London, and uh, going into roof spaces and um, generally rummaging around. And and of course, I mean, I, I think I've said that um, before that. You know, he'd go up into a roof space and find a bit of fungi, which is a bit like a mushroom, and then he'd yeah. stick it in his mouth and say "mwah we're lucky, delicious." And we'd all think, "Oh my god, he's going to die!" <laughs> but of course, he'd been brought up with things like that in the Siberian steppes, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wow, gosh, uh, and I'm sure that somewhere in there, there was like a design bug that started to creep into you, is that right? Because I, I read oh, that after definitely. that, you, you you had a graphic design firm perhaps briefly before things started to change or how did that well, work? Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I mean, I had quite a number of different
1: sort of jobs.
0: One of them was um, shipbroking, broking, um, which was quite different, but then I really wanted to travel. I mean, anything just to be able to travel and, and see different places around the world and collect things. Um, and um, then they asked me to start an in-house magazine and so I was writing and taking the pictures and pulling it all together and then that that's when the graphic side actually um you know I could start to use which was great and um and then I then I met my husband
1: <laughs> wow yeah and that's how this all kind of you know especially your your adventures in hospitality kind of kick off how did the two of you meet first of all? Um,
0: Tim, actually, through Leszek, through Leszek, through oh. the architect. And he got married to uh, one of the galician family and he just, we we were put next door to one another. And, um, and so that's how we got to know one another.
1: Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, did you guys, what did you kind of, have in common like what did you what hit it off well not a lot
0: um i liked (laughs) cats i had cats and i remember him saying that that she might like to have a kitten and then um and it was really funny because um he was he was building this 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 flat this house and um he put a cat door in it and I always remember the builder saying to him, um, but you don't have any cats. And uh, I thought, well, hello, I do. So maybe he was kind of thinking about things before he was actually Aww. saying anything to me. <laughs> bold,
1: actually. That's actually quite yeah. bold. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It sounds like he has a really keen uh, sense of investment. He knew exactly what he knew <laughs> about return, the idea of returns. Um, <laughs> and, and your first hmm. idea for a hotel together was... I read it was like a two-star hotel that you wanted to turn into a boutique hotel. Can you tell yeah. me about how, I mean, how did that, how do you begin with someone that you're new with and and how did that happen?
0: Um, well, Tim had um, these, uh, had very short leases on uh, on some buildings in London. And so he linked them with uh, an American um uh, Richmond College, and it meant that students that came over to London who didn't have anywhere to stay would be staying in uh, his hotel and um, or little sort of hotels, and there'd be about sort of um, I don't know how many students there were, but Friday nights was great because we used to have a barbecue night and we'd we were all little more than students ourselves actually, and um, so there was a great vibe, but um, Tim thought that we'd better try and and uh, the sort of boutique hotels had just started that idea before nobody felt that it would be at all sort of viable to have small hotels. But um, we decided that Dorset Square Hotel was our first and and that was the student hotel. And, and we managed to buy the freehold from a shipping company called uh, Kaiser Irvin, I think, and uh, and so we decided to do uh, a small boutique hotel, and that, that's how, and we approached uh, about thirteen or fourteen banks, and they all said no, no, and um, uh, but finally we got some. Some poor company that <laughs> decided that they would they would I always remember when we sort of opened and we it was quite cold, there was frost in the central gardens, and uh, the bank manager wrote us a letter saying that he really enjoyed the party as he was watching the frost forming <laughs> on, the, on the poor cellist who was playing in the garden um, and um, yeah. That's right. And I remember we had him over for supper one evening and, um, one of my girlfriends obviously must have fancied the bank manager because she obviously had nudged him underneath the table with her knee, and I always wonder if that was, you know, the reason why he gave us the loan or why he would have definitely not given us the loan. <laughs> As it turned out, it worked in our direction.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Bring, yeah. bring her to every bring <laughs> exactly. her to every meeting. Are you kidding? Um, well,
0: we were all footless and and pretty young and fancy free then. You know, we nothing was. Every Everything was very easy you know nothing it was a bit like if somebody showed me a Picasso painting I, I'd say oh I could paint that you know I mean yeah. <laughs> I mean it's because you're so young so arrogant so ignorant and nothing gets in your way
1: and uh, when you guys were maybe uh having a long day you know putting together one of those first hotels that you worked on and and you're you're it's a long day and you're having I don't know curry takeaway after at the don't dinner table Uh, Okay. Well, some (laughs) kind of takeaway. And you're kind of sitting there thinking about brainstorming about what the vision for these hotels is, not just from a design point of view, from like a hospitality point of view. Mm. What was that vision?
0: Um, It was actually not to be sitting absolutely on your own in an empty restaurant because I can promise you it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing. If you are any kind of entrepreneur, you just almost wonder if anybody's going to pick up on your idea. And, um, I mean, I do remember, especially at Ham Yard, because I mean, that is a big, you know, hotel, a big restaurant for us anyway. And I remember thinking, I wonder if anybody's ever going to come. And, um, uh, and and it's yours, it's your ownership until you open the doors from the very first day and then you, it's not yours anymore. So that when you come along, you're almost like an onlooker. You're on the outside looking in and um, it, it's a very, very different feeling. It's actually quite fascinating to see how you've envisaged a space and how it actually works because it can be very different. But, you know, and, we're small and there's very few of us who are managing it. So, you know, we have, we can turn a vehicle around in another direction very quickly, which possibly a very large group or something would not be able to do.
1: And I, I would guess, you know, if I were to say, uh, how did that one-off, you know, at Dorset Square, like how did that become more? How did you decide, when was there a moment, a eureka moment where like, we need to keep growing? Was it kind of like a, a shark thing, where like if you don't stop growing, you kind of dot like if you don't stop stop <laughs> swimming, you'll sink kind of thing. Yes, like it was like we have to grow, or else it's going to like what was that? Yeah, sometimes
0: like? you have to expand through a recession. You know, you you've really got to, and um uh, and and we've done that. Uh, we also you know we've had such great people working with us to keep their interest you have to be opening new doors all the time and design wise i I, i've i've never thought of it as a job it's it's something which um i enjoy doing and i want to know more and uh do more um and never stop learning in a sense yeah
1: before i return to kit camp a word from our sponsor viegra Sometimes, in the world of design, someone creates a legacy so powerful that it creates a style all its own, one that endures, thrives, and evolves. The French House of Liègre, founded by the legendary talent Christian Liègre, carries on the creative ethos of its founder in furniture, interiors, and yachts, from its headquarters in Paris, with a focus on timeless modernism and an elevated palette of materials, textures, and craftsmanship. The latest project of the house is close to the hearts of any lover of travel and design, the Cost liego Capsule Collection. In 2015, Jean-Louis Coste entrusted Christian with the redesign of the Hotel Lotti, nestled between the Tuileries Garden and the Place Vendôme. Today, it's an icon of luxury travel and of Paris as the fashion and design capital of the world. The five-star hotel's redesign was completed in 2020 after Christian's passing, and the collection includes many of the bespoke pieces created for the suites and public spaces. My favorite would have to be the cambon chair. This iconic piece has a backrest covered in tightly woven straw and exemplifies the legacies of both the hotel and the house of Liegra. Elegant, comfortable, and with a sense of timeless modernity. For more information about the collection or any piece from the extensive catalog of Liegra, visit studioliagre.com. That's s t u, d i o, l i a i g r e dot com. And before we get to uh, your hotels in New York, mm. how many in in the UK had you opened it by then? By the time two thousand seven rolls around, I think. Uh, I don't you'd know. Have quite uh, some, maybe
0: six, something like that. Yeah. Yes.
1: And how, what? If I were to ask you, you know, what is your secret of running and, and being not just running, but owning, designing, and keeping all of this together with that size of a business. If there are other designers out there listening, like, what would you say is, uh, the Kit Kemp way of, of doing things?
0: Um, pretty democratically I, I say democratically but then I complete I'm a complete control freak so I don't quite <laughs> how you say that in a sense but within uh it, it is pretty democratic so anybody can say anything and I don't want somebody saying they're more important than somebody else because you know I've always been that person that hasn't felt very important so I don't want to be others to feel like that in a way um but I, I'm just trying to give a, a, a you know a sort of proper answer um well, there aren't any real secrets. The fact is that you have to live, eat, and sleep it, and be totally obsessive. <laughs> That's the answer.
1: <laughs> and uh, I guess you know Tim must really trust your eye more than more than anything.
0: Oh, laws! No, he's my no. biggest critic. He must be oh, joking. Gosh. I mean, hey, if I've managed to get some sort of good words from Tim I know that it's okay oh, and gosh. you know the funny thing is I do actually really rate his judgment because we we go about things in a very different way and and we get but at the se- at the same time we arrive at the same place and and so if, if he says that is not right that is you know I listen to him he he's that's good yeah
1: and you know, at some point you decide to start expanding it to the US and we the Crosby Street Hotel was the first, I believe. And I, you know, I think it opened at a really inopportune time, uh, as it were. <laughs> Can you tell me that story?
0: Oh, well, I mean, uh, Crosby Street, I was... I was very worried about it because uh, there are so many British companies that have crossed the pond, as they say, and really come to grief. Grief, and I'm talking about really great companies. Um, but so I was worried about that, and um, Soho itself, with Crosby Street, and and um, everything over there. I remember going over there and, and 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 walking up and down and thinking, oh my goodness, this is, what's it going to be like? Um, and um, I don't, I mean, it was never, I, it just took slightly longer than I thought it was a, a building site. Then we found this wonderful woman across the road who made films and she every day took several photographs of what was happening on the site and then she built this film around it. So you saw it as uh, a parking lot and then going down and down and down and down because you have to go right down you've got to go down about three or four stories and then it goes up and up and up and up and up and you saw it through all the seasons and with the moon and with the sun and the snow and everything else like that and you get a real feel of how long it takes to actually put um you know the 87 rooms together which sounds really quite small in the whole scheme of things but it was big for us and um Then we bought the building behind so that we could, you know, in Lafayette and and Crosby Um, and it's never an opportune time to open there's always going to be something that's going wrong (laughs) and um, so you've just got to give it your best shot and the thing is it takes a huge amount of effort to get to to that opening day but then you've got to have another huge amount of effort to get the whole thing working because with the hotel you can't have one division or one part of it that isn't working you can't have you know um, sort of calling down for your room service, and it takes about seven hours to come back. Or uh, your room, which looks as if there've been several sort of generations of people living in it. Or the artwork on the wall, which is just yet another botanical print. And, (laughs) um, you know, I mean, all those things, everything's got to work. And um, that's the beauty of it, really.
1: And uh, the reason why I asked for the story is that uh, I think right around the time you were opening is when Lehman sort of collapsed and there was sort of the recession. Were you guys kind of uh, spooked around then? Because I know everybody was because it was kind of like the earth is – the sky is falling a little bit.
0: Yeah. There's always been the sky falling in. I mean, in the UK, there there was either an IRA bomb – or (laughs) there was some kind of deep recession or something ghastly happening. And um, it's rather like one of my daughters, every time she goes on a sort of gap year and travels to somewhere, there's always some disaster. There's either been a volcano, a sort of sandstorm, or a tidal wave. And I feel that that's the same (laughs) every time we open a hotel. I'm just hoping Warren Street isn't going to have the same.
1: (laughs) And your hotels are really clearly struck a chord here um and you know i would say that people's sense of style really did shift after the you call it the great recession um why do you think that your hotels you talk about other um british brands coming to the us and not having a, a good time with it um but you, you've been super successful why do you think you were you've struck a chord here in new york
0: i think we're part of the hood I, and, and I think that uh, when we, um, I mean, to get all the permissions and everything else like this, um, Tim was prepared to stand in the mayor's office for, you know, a day and a half. I mean, it's, uh, the difference is that it's hands-on. What we have done is hands-on. And um, uh, uh, every sort of, everything that goes up, everything, I know it. I've lived with it. And and. I think that is part of the soul so that when people come and stay, they might say, well, actually, it's not exactly my taste or I wouldn't actually do this. But I can see that there is some kind of congruent, intelligent thread or design thread that runs through it. And, and, and people know what's authentic and know when there's been feel the love. You know, that sort of thing in a way. And and that must have something to do with it. I don't know what the whole answer is.
1: And when it comes to, if I wanted, to, if I were to rewind a little bit, um, you know, one of the things that I really admire about your business is that you create all these products for other brands and you have these collaborations, wallpaper and fabric and tabletop, just like any great designer would. Um, and you commission so many artists and craftspeople in every hotel. Um each one unique, uh, one after the other, but you use your own term design alliance, which I find to be really curious and wonderful. Um, tell me why you, you call it that and how you kind of view these relationships because you're not coming at it from a, I don't know, like a, a traditional design background.
0: I never think of it like that, but um, no, it's it's people that I see. As I say, we can have alliances and collaborations with with people who are very well known, but most of the time, it's with up and coming mm-hmm. um, designers or craftspeople or artists, um, sculptors. and um, very often when they're when they're quite young, that I mean, it, it, like Natasha Hulse who was actually that that's doing headboards she did the most amazing headboards and i mean they are like works of art and you know they they're incredible and worth thousands but but when we met Natasha, she had done she'd got a first at Chelsea College, but she was doing fashion. But that is a doggy dog world, and she was not the right sort of person to be doing that. So we said, Well, why don't you try this? But why don't you try it on a weave that's like this and work with felts and work with collage like this? Because this is how it's gonna work. This is it. And then she was off. She just needed that other little touch to say, Well, it's this direction, this sort of fabric, this is how you can paint it, this is how you can collage it and it's just a very often at, at these colleges and these universities it's it's, um, it's okay there but it's not out, it's not out in that commercial world and somehow you ne- you somehow have to be given that practical edge mm. and uh, the same with we've got Gareth or Smith who's done quite a, a bit of sculptural work and I've known him for years doing lamps by designing et etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I know now that I won't be able to afford his work after this because he is really just going to really take off. And um, so I have to go and find somebody else, but he's always going to remain a good friend. (laughs) But there's the excitement of that. But you know, the other thing is that if you are commissioning a craftsman or an artist, you can't then put them in an arm lock. You have got to decide you like their work, give them A lot of reference, a lot of what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to get, and you need to have that focus so you know precisely, you know, maybe the size, the shape, what the feel you are trying to get. After that, you leave it up to them and let them do it. And hopefully the uh, finished idea is better than the original thought behind it.
1: Do you look around your home and wonder, where am I going to put everything? The Grand Tourist certainly does. My collection of lucky Japanese cats my four dozen brooches of varying levels of flair, not to mention my extensive collection of vintage magazines and other baubles collected from a lifetime of little grand tours around the world. If you find yourself in such a dilemma, California Closets can help. Their design experts will collaborate with you to create a custom storage solution based on your needs, your aesthetic, and your budget. So whether you're looking for a harder working closet, storage room for your collectibles, or a multi-purpose studio, California Closets knows how to make room for what belongs. Plus, it's easy to get started. First, schedule a free design consultation, and their designer will talk to you about your needs, measure your space, and create a 3D rendering that shows you the best way to optimize functionality. They'll work with you to refine the design until it's exactly what you want, and after building it, they'll install it with their own team of professionals. After all, the Grand Tourist knows many things, but how to use a hammer and nail? Not exactly. Think of it as practical magic, a series of spells even a podcaster with 20 years of experience could never cast on his own. Learn more at californiaclosets.com. And, you know, I was, uh, if I had to describe your sense of sort of interior design uh, style, right, and what makes you unique to someone who had never seen your work, never been to any of your hotels, I realized that I kind of might sound... A little bit mad because I would describe colors that don't normally aren't put together or I would describe styles that don't necessarily are used very often or you know most people would fail horribly at what you make look so easy and beautiful is what I'm trying to say and you keep pulling it off and so you've done many books also where you kind of describe this sense of style and you kind of guide people along in a really practical way how do you kind of do you have like a turn of phrase, like an elevator pitch of, in a sense of like what your, how you describe the Kit Kemp aesthetic?
0: Well, I guess I'm frightened of beige. Um, <laughs> and so it has to be color. And and I get my sets of colors, like yoga colors, like Bloomsbury colors, like Caribbean colors. And, and they're, they're, they're kind of in sets. And then, of course, there's the texture and a balance that you put them in so you'd only have one very large scale repeat of something and then you'd get a small geometric then you get a plane then you get the different textures that work within it uh, very often playing around the edges and bring the detail into the center and the uh the pattern into the center um, uh, it's it's um i mean we say to uh, uh, to to do a, a really successful room you've got to have the color uh, the five C's, if I can remember them, it's color, craft, character, curation, and uh, well, there is cost, but there is another one as well. And that's that makes six. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I just think that all of those has to have to combine together. And um it has to be bold. I like it to be bold. I like it to make you look twice. I mean, so many of these very monochrome interiors, you've gone in room and gone through it and out the other side and you don't remember anything about it. It could be a small space or it could be a big space. Um, I mean, I always say if you make all your little spaces something which is memorable, it actually makes it feel bigger. Uh, It's more memorable. And um, more of an adventure, because I do think that interiors should have an adventure feel to them and they should have a fun aspect to them. There should be some kind of focal point, something that, you know, references you as the owner of it um, and then work from there. But I love to see other people's houses and, and um, the idiosyncrasies and the madness and and the undecoratedness of it. <laughs> Yeah.
1: tell me a little bit about you know how is your business set up today you know from a a 30,000 foot view in terms of like your studio and the business itself
0: well I mean it's always broken up into various bits so I mean we've got over 2,000 people working for us, but I don't have that amount of people working for me. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> within the, the design division, there are about 12 of us, 14 oh. of us, I guess. Yeah. So it's small. It's neat. Because what I don't want is the tail to wag the dog. And if you get so many people, it's not your look anymore. It just can't be. Uh, on the other hand, you, you've got so many spaces that you can't do it all yourself. But... Um, we're still just about at that size where I feel really good about it. Um, and I love the team that I've I've got together. And um, so on every Wednesday, we would sit down and have a kind of show and tell of we've got one bit, which is sleeping around, which is saying our favorite bedrooms. And then we've got out and about, which is what's happening in New York and in London and anywhere else in the world. Then we've got Meet the Maker, which is all about our favorite craftsman, or, you know, Joe Tilson, who's uh, an artist who's in his 90s, just died very recently. So we can just do a little resume of his life, because I didn't read Anything in the press about him, and and this is my one criticism of of the Brits and a lot of their artists. They don't re- they don't they don't laud them in the same way that you would get in the States or Japan or somewhere like that. You know, they've gone and it's a whisper, and uh, I think that's a shame. So that we, we have our favourites, mm. and um, then what else? And then we have the do's and don'ts, the do's mm. and don'ts of how you should put something together, and and it is purely subjective of course Um, but it does have a point of view
1: (laughs) what's your best do and your best don't
0: oh um my best do and my best don't i'd say really just do it because i've got so many people who say well when i've got when i've learned to do cad when i've done my course when i've done this i'm going to be this that and the other and i say well look just do it and these things are going to add the whole time, but it's, it's that doing something every day. It's like every day immersing yourself with what you're loving and what you feel is you that, um, and, and I was just reading about Sol Witch and we went to Dear Beacon, um, when I was in New York just, you know, about a week or so ago. And, and I was reading about how he wrote to a friend and she was having a kind of creative block and he was saying that, uh, perfectionism uh, spoils creativity, and you've just got to do it. And just by doing it, somehow you'll, you'll hit your stray, stride somewhere along that. And, and, and I would say that's, that's a big do. Yeah. And the don't is, for heaven's sake, don't listen to anybody until you finish the job Because when you're halfway through, everybody's going to come in and say, I don't like that and I hate that color and it's not going to work. And you've got to have your strength of personality or your strength of will or conviction in yourself that you're just going to complete it. And then at the end of it, you know, they'll come in and say, did you have to do very much here? And you'll say, no, not really. Didn't really do anything. (laughs) Knowing that there wasn't anything there before.
1: (laughs) Would you say that, you know, that there is kind of an innate... Englishness to
0: do you know, I don't want to be innately English because they have a very, what I would call, constipated look about everything. And I I love you know the freedom of lots of other things, that influences that come in, <laughs> wherever I they think... come from. No, I would say, I mean, I love the idea of some merchant, you know, an old seaman, an old captain, going around the world and bringing back things and then placing them in his living spaces. And, you know, whether it's an old sea chest or a galleon or... Um, you know, an Indian spice cabinet. They should all be working together, and uh, I, I think it, it's that excitement of a space that that is so nice. So not purist.
1: So I learned uh, from uh, I would say my friend and uh, one of your longest uh, teammates, uh, Craig Markham, who's yes. uh, a, a kind of amazing gentleman running all of your communications for a very very long time. I think since the '80s, and we were talking about how impressive. The company is that maybe not not even from an out, you know an outsider or a, a typical visitor would know, and I heard that you have your own company that does your linens in London, like a like laundry. Oh like, yeah, yeah, and which I, I find I, to be incredibly impressive, by the way, <laughs> um, and shows that control freak uh, nature uh, that you mentioned. <laughs> uh, tell me about that because that kind of you know that's so impressive.
0: Well, it's funny, really, because I, I always said. first of all, there are a couple of things. When Tim and I sat down and started in business together, I said, when we have a personnel division or an HR, let's give up because, you know, that just shows that kind of things are getting too big and out of hand and everything else. So now we do have HR and we have training and God knows what else. And um, so that's one thing. And um, then I always, we always said together, gosh, if everything goes bottom up, if everything goes belly up and and we're on our uppers, at least we've got the laundry <laughs> because everybody is always going to have to have something washed or cleaned. <laughs> so that is it. It's the big fallback. If anything catastrophic happens, we've got that laundry. <laughs> And, uh, we did try a bakery. We've, we've just got the bakery as well, but we've, d- we've got to run it properly. We're just doing that right now.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. gosh. So you're building your own bakery s- to supply all of the hotels and, and yeah. to do it yourself. Yeah. What, it's what, actually
0: basically supplying just a sort of warehouse at the moment. Oh gosh. Where, uh, yeah. But this
1: idea where would, I mean, I can understand, uh, having a laundry that you want it to be done the right way at, at you know, and in a certain speed and, and however you'd like it done, uh, because your hotels are quite high end and in terms of bakery like what what do you is there are you, is it hard finding the the perfect croissant in 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 London is that where this comes from
0: yeah i tell you why because there are a lot of sulky boys in kitchens and um I I don't blame them, you know, I always feel sorry for chefs and people in kitchens, because unless they're behind glass, and part of, uh, you know, sort of the show of it, there's people eating their food, and they never get to see them. I mean, if I cook a good meal, I want it I want to see someone really enjoying it so that they can say, oh, that was absolutely delicious. But I think it must be really hard to be stuck behind the scenes like that. Um, But but sort of making croissants and bread and things like that, it's such a fabulous thing. I just love the smell, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that baking bread and everything else like that. Um, But I I do have strong views. I I don't really like sourdough. And I, I do like some of those big, crusty French breads that you put in a wet tea towel and it lasts all week.
1: Uh, Warren Street, your third uh, hotel in in New York, uh, which will be opening fairly soon, possibly by the time this, this comes out. Um, where did this idea come from? Because it's uh, Tribeca is booming in terms of its uh, hotels and it's evolving quite quickly in a really beautiful way. Um, how did that start?
0: Well, Warren Street actually is, is um, it's a great street because it doesn't look as if it's surrounded by massive high rises or anything else like that. But with a sort of glancing glance from the top floor, you can see the Hudson. And it's only a few blocks away from the Oculus and from Battery Park and things like that. And it's funny, really, because I do love cycling in New York. And, you know, um, sort of from, from the Whitby going down, I can cycle all the way down. And I've always liked to cycle down to the Museum of Mankind and, and all that sort of area. And uh, even when we were, uh, I was doing the Crosby Hotel, I would stay at the Greenwich. And, uh, and then I, every morning I would, just, well, actually, I say run, but it's more like a kind of trudge <laughs> <laughs> down to sort of Brookside Plaza and around there and back again. I always loved it. And so when we got the opportunity to do this Tribeca and, and it is what you know sort of 12 years on or whatever um and and it has I mean it's such an exciting area now there are all kinds of things like performing arts places and everything else so uh we thought let's give it a go
1: and so what how would you describe how is this location different from your other two in New York
0: well, it's funny how the it seems like fresher air down there. I don't know why that should be. It seems to be almost brighter, the aspect coming into the rooms, because we always insist on floor to ceiling windows. Um, which I remember talking to one of the um, architects once, who had come up with a design where there was a window on one side, and then on the next floor there was a window on the other side, and then it was went like that. And I said to him, I said, "How can you put curtains against a window when it's right against the cool, That uh, wall, you know, the angle, the corner." And he said, "Well, why would you want curtains?" So I thought, right, well, this is not going to work for us, because <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day. I like to work from the inside out rather than the outside in. And I want to see out those windows and I want to sit on a window seat. I want to be on my mobile phone and I want to see what's going on in the street. Um, But anyway, back to Warren Street, the aspect on both sides is good. There's a lot of light coming in and we've got quite a few terraces. And I would say one of the defining features are the gardens on the terraces because at Crosby Street, we created a meadow suite, which wasn't on the ground floor and um everybody loves it so we thought hey we'll do some more so we've got grass and you can sit in the bath and watch the plants grow outside Uh, it's really quite special in that way and space and light very good great restaurant and um just a really good vibe it's colourful I hope I haven't even done it with color actually but I, I did do I did do um 12 different colors with Annie Sloane and and a paint person and so I said I would use those in the lobby but in fact the colors that have come over are not the ones that we actually mixed so they're slightly out so I'm going to have to I mean you know at this stage there's so many things like even the legs on a sofa could be the wrong length and you've got to sort all that out just before D day and opening as if you know it was all fine and dandy
1: (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know one of the most uh one of the spaces when i toured it um that struck out to me the most was the the rooftop because you're kind of like surrounded by these enormous but with a remove so you're not claustrophobic but you have these beautiful buildings to look at freedom towers sort of uh right there in your face um what in terms of the public spaces, what uh, are you most looking forward to seeing, sort of, up and running?
0: Oh, I think I think the the brasserie and bar and the orangery downstairs, because that's going to be great for people who live there, uh, as well as as everybody who's visiting and and business people. I hope, and then you know that the, the the garden so you're outside and inside in that building it's got a really good feel and and then on those rooftops of course i mean that's going to be first of all just for our guests to enjoy and uh use as as an event space um and and then build on it really
1: i mean it's funny you mentioned the the brasserie because if i ever want to meet somebody in midtown or in soho in New York. And if I ever mention a hotel, people will always, any hotel, they'll kind of be like, well, I don't know about this one. I don't know about that one. But if I ever suggest one of your hotels, they're was like, oh, great. I love it there. Oh, and it, everyone so is always so comfortable there. It's from a hospitality point of view, of course, us being New Yorkers, we don't stay in your hotels because we don't need to. <laughs> um, have you ever, what about just going into the restaurant business and just doing restaurants rather than building a hotel offer it was that ever an opportunity for you or something you were not interested in or
0: we did but I mean there's so much more dimension to to actually doing what we're doing rather than than just restaurants and you know all my all our projects are like little jewel boxes in a way and you can't run them out I, I, I don't feel that you could have them in every city it's not that's not the way we work. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's a one-off. And, and, and I'm looking forward to completing the the brasserie at Warren Street because it has got a very warm feel to it. I mean, as it is now, there's, there's nothing on the wall. It just feels like, you know, when you go into these spaces, when they're building sites, they're quite, you know, they're, they're quite austere. If it's below ground, you feel like you're in a huge cardboard box. Or even just on this ground floor, it's got Everything happening in there, uh, but when it's finished, it's going to be very warm, and it's actually going to have quite a French feel to it. I think more than anything else, actually, yeah.
1: And what's next for what's next for you? Obviously, um, we've got this hotel coming up, and uh yeah. what's, what's next on the horizon for?
0: Well, we've we've camp- just. I mean, we, I do some private work, and um, I'm just we're just putting together something in Barbados, which is like a small hotel for another client. Oh, um, wow. Uh, for a private client. And um, then we've got GP&J Baker, which is Cravet, and uh, done quite a comprehensive collection for them, which is weaves and stripes and wallpapers and prints and planes. And so that's coming out in, in spring next year. And um, uh, and then Warren Street opening. I mean, that's that's quite a big thing. And then th- there is another project, pro- project in the UK that I'm doing and one in the south of France. So there's a lot going on. And oh. um, so it's great. Yeah, it keeps my team busy. And you know what? One day they can be um, doing a, a rendering of a you know, house. Or one day they can be doing a plate. Or another day they can be doing a throw. Or another day they can do, be doing packaging. And I like my team to be able to do all those things. And I think it keeps them on their toes. and me are
1: you a good boss
0: um well i think i'm great (laughs) i don't know what they think i think sometimes i can be a bit scary but you know when you've got a budget of millions that you're responsible for you're never going to be a pussycat let's put it that way not all the time anyway (laughs)
1: Thank you to our guest, Kit Kemp, as well as to Tim Monahan and Craig Markham for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.